Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Stoddard is associate editor and columnist for Real Clear Politics. She's covered Capitol Hill for more than two decades and brings tremendous knowledge and expertise to the topic of women in politics and government. We're doing something a bit different today. We're actually recording a series of conversations about women in power, women as role models, and women as they're depicted in film. In this three-part series, we'll be talking to Colleen Griffin, the producer of a political thriller called An Acceptable Loss, starring Jamie Lee Curtis and Tika Sumter. We're also talking to former Congresswoman Barbara Comstock and A.B. Stoddard from Real Clear Politics. Each of these women brings tremendous knowledge, experience, and expertise to the topic of women in power. Women as role models, even when sometimes those role models may be morally or ethically challenged, and women in film in particular, and how all of these themes ultimately intersect. We're talking about women both in front of the camera as well as those who are behind the scenes raising the money to make interesting movies happen. A big thanks to the producers of An Acceptable Loss, Corrado Mooncoin, Colleen Griffin and Joe Chappelle, and Candy Strait, for their support of She Said, She Said, and for helping to make this series of conversations possible. A.B., welcome to She Said, She Said. Thanks for having me, Laura. It's great to be with you. I'm so happy to have you. You have been covering Capitol Hill for quite a few years now. You and I have known each other for more than 20. We'll leave it at that. What have you seen in terms of significant changes as it relates to more women in power? We've just had a big election. It's certainly not the first time that we've had an insurgence of a number of women coming in at the same time, but this one was fairly significant and also represented more racial diversity. I'm really struck um, by the fact that uh, women stood up. Um, and became um, more representative as office holders. They, they, I think they learned that they are, we also make up a larger portion of the electorate. Uh, and they wanted their voices to be heard and they wanted to be to, to, to represent their concerns, their policy um, preferences, all these things. What's unfortunate is that um, there are 89 Democrats in the House and 13 Republicans, and that number, 13 Republicans, is the same it was in 1989. So the Republicans actually lost members this time. And I think that there has been a tremendous response to efforts by Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, a Republican from New York 21, I believe. Yes. But she is she started something called EPAC, and she is trying to sound the alarm in her party about bringing more women into representation um, in the Republican Party and into the House of Representatives. And I'm excited about the fact that there are some women um, running for 2020 already, so early in the cycle as Republicans, because this is something that all women should be trying to participate in believe that they can bring value to. And I don't think it should be um, a Democratic Party value that we the only women you see out there as leaders are Democrats. So that's I think that's been a personal sort of 
disappointment of mine. But we, as we look back at the leaders who have emerged since I first started covering Capitol Hill, it's it's an impressive lot. I mean, I look at it's been bipartisan uh, trailblazers uh, like Condoleezza Rice, like Senator Elizabeth Dole, uh, the Secretaries of State Madeleine Albright. Of course, Condi Rice was one. Hillary Clinton, uh, Nancy Pelosi becoming speaker for the second time. But I've trudged around with a lot of women since the early days. Uh, names people don't know, you know, Congresswoman Connie Morella and Barbara Kennelly and Louise Slaughter and uh, all these women that were in there. Uh, Barbara Mikulski, senator from Maryland, uh, our home state, a long, long time ago when they were it was sort of exotic. But you, but they certainly didn't make the national news and not a lot of people knew who they were. I, and they did the you know the hard work of laying the groundwork for this. And I think now women increasing in numbers has attracted a lot of attention. But the attention belies the fact that it's still incredibly challenging. And there are, ton, you know, triple, double, quadruple standards, you know, that we mm-hmm. can't really peel back that are a part of the process. And that has to be accepted. I, I, I'm delighted to see it growing. And I think it just, like I said, it needs to be bipartisan. Yeah. What about generational differences that you see in the way in which they conduct themselves, the way in which they lead? I mean, it's still early and you've got a number of millennials who were just elected as part of this new class and they are in and of themselves kind of unique. Again, maybe it's just because they as individuals are unique or is it more of a generational shift where they are more inclined to share on a very personal level than what you or I may have seen historically. Well, what's so interesting about that generational divide, of course, is something we all reflected on as women in Hillary's run in 2016, because so many of her supporters were, you know, 60 and older. Some of them had uh, either never been able to achieve professional success or had against very steep odds like Hillary uh, some of them had stayed with their husbands who had cheated on them. There were so many issues that were um, all around that kind of age and stage that millennial women didn't understand. They didn't remember the boom times of the 90s, the Clinton economy, um, the popularity of Bill Clinton, let alone the tawdry story of what happened in their marriage and what led to his impeachment and even her entrance into politics. So they were sort of what older women took as an automatic that all the girls and women would be with Hillary was just stunning to women who were 25 who were saying, you know, we are going to get a woman as president soon, just not this woman. I, I'm, I'm cool. I'll wait another six or eight years thinking, of course, it'll be automatic. And so there's totally different attitudes about the, the, the chips in the glass ceiling and the perspective of women today who are 25 versus 55, 65. Their style and leadership, of course, is different. But I think that what's interesting is the ones who are younger coming up who are in the poser generation, put everything on Facebook, market and promote yourself all day, make sure you always have an image of yourself out there, tell everything, hide nothing, um, uh, versus the uh, obviously the, the difference um, of those who came before the digital natives who don't think that you tell everything, that don't think that you put everything on Facebook from your morning coffee till you're soaking your toes before bed. And 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 also at the same time, conversely, women do get to a point when they're almost 60 where they are liberated and they're not trying to be someone they think they're supposed to be. They're not worried about a brand. They're not worried about an image. 
And they have tons of lifetime experience, which gives them perspective and confidence that I think is so helpful to leadership. So someone like Donna Shalala comes to mind. She's a freshman Democrat in the House. Mm. This woman has decades of experience as a university president at several universities. She's been a cabinet secretary. This woman has seen it all. She is one of the smartest, most funny, most shrewd, honest, blunt people I have ever met. She is an enormously impressive human being. Um, you don't see her running around on TV trying to get the spotlight and, and grow her image as a freshman member of Congress. She's obviously working behind the scenes and bringing tremendous value to the conversation, to the um, policy debates, to the political uh, machinations also probably is an enormous resource for the younger female members. And so as I get older, I value experience and what that brings to, you know, the younger sisters. And and, and they might be a different style, but I know that, you know, Donna Shalala did come up in a very different time that these um, 30-year-olds can imagine. And I think of her as someone who just got there. I mean, she hasn't, she's not coming to them saying, hey, um, you know, Katie Porter, I've been here for 30 years as a House member. I mean, she might be in her 70s, but she just got there, too. And she's a member of their freshman class. And what an enormous treasure of knowledge and, and experience she can bring to them and just sort of how to be a trailblazer. And so there are so many wonderful examples, I think, of of how different they all are. But uh, I certainly think the um, the elder stateswomen uh, are enormously valuable, even though they're not going to be like Facebooking all day about their latest speech or their next initiative. Right, right. So they are all interesting examples of different types of role models, and it's a great opportunity to pivot and talk a bit more about the film. You've had a chance to watch the movie. It, of course, centers on two women who are at the highest levels of government, a vice president who becomes president and her national security advisor. As we've talked about uh, in the previous two series, these two characters are flawed in different ways. When you think about this notion of role models, does it matter that much that they're not necessarily the good guys? One could quibble about whether they both fall into that category, but but does it really matter, given that you're seeing women in positions that, at least in one case, they've not we've not seen them in before? I think as women, we learn from every woman in power, and whether they fail or succeed, whether they come up short in their character and their moral fortitude or not, it's still, we've just been watching men, largely white men, most of our growing up in these positions. And I think there's always something to learn from every story. And so, you know, look at um, Susan Rice, look at uh, Nikki Haley, uh, Samantha Powers. What's so interesting actually is that Samantha Power was not celebrated by the media as this, you know, force um, at the United Nations as an ambassador, the way that Nikki Haley was like the second coming. You know, she got so much media attention, I think all deservedly so. Um, but and, and they're both moms and, you know, they're they're both. Uh, but but Susan Rice, um, because she was caught up in a scandal and has a very kind of defensive and sort of cool nature, you know, was became a quasi villain and like much like Hillary and attracted a lot of, you know, negative attention. But I always think that women who are coming up 
uh, in any industry, but particularly maybe in politics or government, should should be watching every one of these stories because there's always something to learn. Um, what is interesting is there's double standard that women feel when they have incredible power, in her, especially in the national security space, that they feel they have to behave like men. Any kind of emotion or equivocation is seen as weakness, and this is a longstanding, you know, doubt that even Democrats still have that that men, particularly, you know, certain type of man in the Rust Belt, you know, is not going to vote for a woman to be a commander in chief. And so when you look at the character of Rachel, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis plays, she's fearless, she's resolved, she's authoritative, she's driven, and that becomes unattractive and threatening to a lot of people who are uncomfortable with women in power. And so even though in the end she makes some, you know, a morally a wrong calculation, she's she's putting, you know, she's her ambition sort of overtakes her reasoning. Uh, just those characteristics in any in any in any movie uh, about a different with a different plot line or in real life is unattractive. Whereas a woman is supposed to just be confident, hardworking and capable, which Libby is. And then she has, of course, a moral crisis and she's so conflicted. But she's been driven and she at some point probably thought she was fearless. But if you look at the contrast between the two characters, she's supposed to be the real woman who wants to do the right thing because women do the right thing. And of course, Rachel is so driven by ambition that she it overtakes her and she just wants to win at all costs um, and beats up her female colleague and, and former friend because she's not willing to come along. That's what we're supposed to do. Why aren't you coming along? And so this is the crisis for women in leadership, whether it's at a Fortune 500 company or, or running for the Senate or governor. It's that, it's that once you get there, do you mimic the traits in men that you've seen in leadership and take the heat because of it and often therefore hinder your ability to lead, particularly among other women? Or do you um, be completely honest and and herald the fact that women are different leaders. And that's the crisis for for um, women leaders. And I don't know, I hope we will see women in a different leadership style at all levels of corporate life, teachers, pastors, and, and, and public servants. But at the absolute level of commander in chief, I don't know that we're going to really see um, someone who's willing to step out and be different than a man. And so she is sort of the prototype of what we would imagine a woman under the pressures of making life and death national security decisions would be like. So interesting. So as you know, Colleen Griffin, who was the producer on this film, joined us in an earlier segment to talk about this. And it was really her idea to cast these two roles as women. They were originally written for men, not surprisingly. Do you think it would have mattered that much in terms of how the film would play out if those characters had been men? Oh, it still would have been interesting, but we all we would have expected, right? There's the Dick Cheney character, who be you know, or the president, you know, and then there's the um, conflicted guy, the national security advisor, who thinks that they've done the wrong thing and they've been dishonest, and and I I think it would have been different because it is the it is the fact that the the U.S. president is a woman and she's making these decisions uh, without sweating it and is tougher than nails and that she's making those demands of another woman is that that they worked in concert and then there was this you know the for Libby this incredible crisis moral conflict and regret 
and and I think that that shapes the whole. To me, that is the whole storyline. Is that is is because it's two women and this incredible position of power and accountability, and it's so painful. I think it would have been pretty. Um, it would have been just another story of yeah. of the guy trying to do the right thing if if they were men. I can't think of another example of seeing president or vice president, president, and national security advisor cast as women. Or women. No, I can't either. Roles. No, it's usually one yeah. surrounded by men. And that's such an interesting dynamic is how women engage at high levels of power with each other yeah. versus with men. So um, you hear a lot about women being terrible bosses to other women because they take on the characteristics of, of what they believe leadership and management strengths are in men. Uh, Maybe and, because of those role models, because of what we've right, historically seen right. in the past. And we don't have enough yet of women. Um, I'll tell a quick story I think is really interesting. I was invited to a um, to a candidate forum. Let's, I, I don't want to be too specific because it was an off the record uh, with some Republican women who were running for the House and some incumbents before before the election last fall. And, and I said, so do any of you just when you're talking to voters, just because all these women are running, make the case that, you know, you're a woman and that you need to go to the House because they need more women on the team. And they they were stunned by the question and and just uh, uh, really taken aback. And they said, I'm not running because I'm a woman. And, you know, the typical speech, I'm running because I'm really interested in whatever taxation. And I and I said, I, you know, I just want to I just want to say um, the reason I brought this up is because I have a bias towards women in leadership. And I, I believe that women are better problem solvers. They're better listeners. They're better managers. They're better team members, team leaders. They read to the end of the email, which apparently men are incapable of doing. <laughs> um, and I said, I, I was thinking that would be something that you were offering the voters in proud, uh, you know, just blunt fashion that you that women we need more women in government. And and so it was sort of the surprising conversation that we had. Was and, this a, a party-specific Yes, gathering? it was. It, yeah, uh -huh, they were yeah. Republican. Yes, of course they were. Um, <laughs> and so, and I was trying to urge them to, to say that this is an advantage you have over the male, you know, your your male opponent, that, that and you should just wear like a badge of honor. And and we're not there yet. And, and I, I don't think Democrats do that either, really. I think that you're still afraid to be, because then the Republican... Um, opponent is going to say that you're playing a woman card. Right. And I just have this is my deep seated belief that women are everything I just listed mm -hmm. better at those things. So it's, I don't know that I'm not going to argue about waging war. I haven't been in a situation room. But I, just generally speaking, I, I would make the case at least for governor's mansions and um, House and Senate. Yeah. Don't you think, though, this notion and I and I laughed, obviously, when you said that this was a gathering of Republican women, because I would have guessed that because this notion of identity politics still looms so large for the Republican Party. And I think it's a real challenge in how candidates, male and female, right. talk about the issue of gender because they they want it not to matter. But it does matter. It does matter. And look, the thing is, you, we can say the Republicans are uncomfortable with that topic. But look at the Democrats. They have a field with five women in it. None of them are doing well enough Kamala Harris, Senators Warren and Harris sometimes make it into the top four or five in the polls. Largely the preferences so far of the primary electorate are white men because they want someone who can beat the president and they want a winner. These women are not taking off in their candidacies. And we have yet 
in all the town halls and all the debates and the discussions really focused on national security and the role of commander in chief and what kind of bias exists in this country with men and their wives sometimes who don't believe a woman can sit in that room surrounded by men and make these life and death decisions. Um, And I think that's a conversation we need to have. And it's clearly being avoided even by Democrats. They talk about domestic policy all day. Sometimes someone will bring up foreign policy. And the truth is a lot of them agree with President Trump. Get out of Syria now. Get out of Afghanistan yesterday. I mean, so that's a conversation they're avoiding. But the actual, you know, conversation about why women could win next year is largely being avoided even by them. You uh, wrote a piece recently, which is really interesting and I think a great additional point to make as we're talking about how women behave in leadership roles. Senator Amy Klobuchar was is or was allegedly abusive to staff. I don't know. I never experienced it, so I'm not saying she was or wasn't. But It's pretty documented. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. You wrote a piece, and several people had been quick to defend her, saying that the criticism of her behavior was in and of itself sexist. Talk a little bit about the piece that you wrote. Right. So I have a real problem with this, um, which is, and I also wrote another piece, I think, first about Elizabeth Warren and the fact that she's just not likable. So what the liberal chorus does is they say, that's sexist. So you can't criticize anything about Tulsi Gabbard. Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, Kirsten Gillibrand, or Kamala Harris, because anything you say about them is sexist. So nothing will keep us further back and buried uh, in this process of trying to achieve equal representation across all walks of life, you know, professionally in this country, uh, get more balance in our lives in terms of taking care of our children and our elderly parents than talking about everything and uh, every criticism that is leveled at as a woman in public life as sexism. So Elizabeth Warren is not likable. That's just her problem. Neither was Richard Nixon. She can take it up with him if she thinks it was sexism. He had to face it. You know, every one, every white man's been compared to the other white man. And, and John F. Kennedy was just a little more likable. So it's a tough game if you want to run for president. On the, on the subject of Amy Klobuchar's record in the Senate, it's legendary. There's stuff that hasn't been published, but there's stuff, there's enough that has been published. And she he dismisses it saying she's a demanding boss. My argument is criticizing that is 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 the wor- is the furthest thing from sexist. She is um, not able to control herself when she's upset and she treats her staff um, abuse in an abusive fashion in some cases maybe in the best scenarios and there are some obviously some anecdotes are worse than ever disrespectfully. And um, my argument is that you don't go up against President Trump, who also shames his staff, tweets, fires them over tweet, um, makes up st- lies about them, everything else, and rages at them with with a woman who's going to come in and and have these same characteristics that I think character matters in leadership. And I think that respecting everyone and working as a team is essential, especially when you're you can't run this country by yourself as president. You depend on all these people. And I think it's a sign of weakness in your leadership if a bunch of people are running to the press saying she has mistreated a significant number of people and we need it to be out in the open. And I say in the column, say it with me, ladies, if everything is sexist, nothing is sexist. So if we do get to this debate, Laura, about a commander in chief as a woman and how she just simply is too emotional to take on the role uh, and she's not physically and mentally capable and all this, that's going to be a sex. That's going to be a discussion where someone if someone levels that charge, it's going to be sexist. And, um, you know, or a charge about outfits or how someone came late and she didn't put her makeup on when she got to the debate stage or whatever. 
then we have to have a real conversation about sexism. And at that point, no one will be listening if every single criticism of Tulsi Gabbard and all these senators have been have been, you know, dismissed as as sexist. Hillary Clinton earned her criticism. She worked very hard at it and um, criticizing the fact, you know, that she has told a lot of lies, you know, had her own private server, destroyed classified information, um, has a very entitled attitude. Doesn't Those things aren't, it's not sexist to say that's why she didn't appeal to many Americans as a candidate. So it's a very difficult conversation, but I, I'm very frustrated by the fact that liberals tend to believe that, that all women get a pass on everything because they're female. How about pivoting just a bit and talk about how especially in a, an especially polarized environment. It's very hard to get things done. And I think it's difficult for members, whether they're male or female, to show a track record in this environment. So talk a bit about how sort of you think about effectiveness and if you're seeing any evolution in the way that your fellow journalists look at that notion. And does that have an impact, a, a benefit for women? Well, that no, no, that's no, that's a really interesting question, Laura, because from the time that you and I first um, got our experience on Capitol Hill and to now, the the government has gone from, you know, highly functioning to not functioning. So bills don't pass anymore. So in the constitutional confrontation that we're in right now, people are saying, well, the Democrats should get busy to work on health care and all the things they say are important. Well, they can pass bills all day long in the House and Senator Mitch McConnell is not going to put them on the floor in the Senate. They're not going to be signed into law by President Trump. So they could do nothing but legislate all day. And um, the voters are not going to find their lives changed next year because they can't pass anything. Um, so we have all this partisan gridlock. So so, the yes, it is interesting when you look at sort of um, Nancy Pelosi. Um, I completely underestimated her. I said there were more than 30 Nancy refusers on the record. She had a math problem that she certainly um, was coming up against this. A pretty robust opposition in several members. Um, and it, I did not know that those members had no one to run against her. Um, I figured they had a plan because they were so loud on their, you know, their mission to, to, to knock her off. And I did not know that she had such secret powers behind closed doors to bend people to her will. And boy, does she. Um, and I will give her that because in the end, uh, she got right to where she needed to be. And the praise for her in the last four months about how effective she's been is not because they've passed bills on the floor that have become law or have any chance of becoming law. It's because she hasn't taken President Trump's bait. She has sat in the meetings and been dignified. She has been stronger than him at most turns. Um, She is shrewd as the day is long, and she has been uh, not a liberal lunatic. She has talked time and time and time about uh, governing for Main Street, paying it, hewing to the center, uh, making sure that 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 the folks at home know that they're not here to impeach the president. They're doing the best they can to fend off a constitutional confrontation, but that the members in Virginia 7 and Oklahoma 5 and New York 22 who won Trump seats uh, are here to do the people's business and they're not uh, here to focus on Donald Trump all day. They made her majority and she knows that they will they will keep or, or lose her majority. And so she has been far more pragmatic um, and uh, focused on the team um, and uh, and not going out. I think she learned a lot in her first experience as speaker. And so we use different metrics now. You know, we, we're comparing her first speakership to now. 
were comparing um, her relationship with someone like George W. Bush, who had great respect for her and gave her a monster hug at his dad's service at the Capitol to, you know, how she's being treated by President Trump, her age and stage in life that she's in her 70s and she works 17 hours a day in high heels and is absolutely tireless. So we have different. It's not bills passed anymore. It's not laws on the books. It's um, look at this woman who returned against so many odds to leadership in this crazy age of Trump. And we watch with fascination what the challenges are facing her each week and how she handles them. So it is a different she is literally being judged on a different set of of um, of factors and questions and metrics than she was last time. I think it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a survivor. We've seen her before. She's evolved. You know, the party's going too radical. She went to APAC, a huge statement to say, my party's not anti-Semitic and to throw her own members under the bus. There's only three of them, but it was a very gutsy thing to do. And she is not a captive to the far left. And don't think she doesn't face an enormous amount of pressure every day to to act like she is. And I just think that um, it's been a fascinating thing to watch. Um, and she doesn't play the sexist card. She just goes about her business all day. So I think that's been interesting. The people who cover her and did in 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10, we're really, those of us who've been around have really watched the evolution. And it's a fascinating lesson about politics. And it's a fascinating lesson about polarized government and it's a fascinating lesson about women and it's a fascinating lesson about Nancy Pelosi who's a singular political figure but I do think that in terms of what you're talking about general sort of um, people being constructive members um, I'd point out Martha McSally when she was a member on the House side she was a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus and always always working with the other side you know quietly behind closed doors while trying to make it through a Senate primary that was very very tough um, when you're running against Sheriff Joe and Kelly Ward, I don't think it gets worse. And, you know, now she's in the Senate um, trying to survive in a, in a race that she might not survive in. Um, and so her the pressures on her have changed, whereas I just personally know that she wasn't out on TV or in Vogue magazine in, in big um, splashy, you know, articles taking a lot of credit for the fact that she is one of the women in the House who was with a great background and, you know, serious national security chops and everything else sitting at the table and staying there late into the night to try to come up with bipartisan proposals. So it's, you know, I wish women got credit for that. But when you don't take credit for it, um, nobody knows you're doing it. So here I am, you know, giving her some cred. But um, do you think it's because perhaps and I'm not sure this is true necessarily in Senator McSally's case, but in certain districts and maybe even states. It's politics. She it's she has politics. to survive a primary right, right now. She has to serve. Kelly Ward became the state party chair. Biden's ahead of Trump in 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 uh, Arizona. She's going to have a brutal reelect to hold McCain's seat. Uh, she just lost the Senate race. Um, but I but she has to survive a primary with Kelly Ward as the party chair. Yeah. So that is um, that has to do primary politics shapes so much of what I'm watching every day and what actually ends up being our governance. It's it's a it's a tragedy. Can you talk about gender in that context a little bit more? Well, um, you know, I think women try to navigate uh, a brutal uh, partisan tribal politics um, and and bring more sensibility to it than men. They don't like to to kill or be killed. Um, they don't like to be street fighters. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so I think it makes you know makes them uncomfortable. I'm trying to think about uh, it. It just it's it's tough. Um, you know, several women have done it. Kelly Ayotte comes to mind. Kathy McMorris Rogers. You know, places where um, where they ended up. Um, I mean. One loss, one one. But I, I, I need to come up with more examples. But basically, I mean, you can do it uh, without be coming out with a reputation like Liz Cheney, who just has a total brass knuckles, you know, persona. That's what everyone thinks is like, get out of her way, or you might not survive. I mean, she's very effective that way. But there are others who choose a different course, and it is, it's, it's, it's hard. Uh, Barbara Comstock is a, is someone she's been able to navigate, um, you know, in politics. Um, really being uh, just known as like being more effective than sort of a political fighter. Um, in a very purple, if not blue. Yeah. It, it, yeah. I mean, that was brutal. I mean, that Virginia 10, just so you know, is was the perfect storm of of anti-Trump energy. Virginia 10 is high education, high income. So it, it's and, and Barbara, you know, did an incredible job of hanging on. Uh, and she's um you know, but she had to fend off primary challenges as well. It's 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 very very hard, um, and uh, and I I think of Katie Arrington in South Carolina. She took on Mark Sanford in the primary to the delight of Donald Trump, and then he and then and then she lost the seat <laughs> in the general, and so now Oklahoma five is is. Uh, um, I'm sorry. Um, in South Carolina one, South Carolina one is uh is democrat so so yeah so it's it, it it's um I, I don't know we have a record yet for if you take the the if you like our trump style primary fighter kelly ward style if you win kelly lost martha mcsally won i mean yeah. you know i don't know that we like if uh, the jury's in but women choose one of two ways yeah do you think they're held women who lose when they're running are they held to a higher standard if they try to get back in again than men I don't know. Um, I think it gives them more confidence. They know, you know, they... For they, them. For right. Them. But I don't know that... I don't know... I mean, I think there's... I think it's hard to come back. Um, but men do it all the time and women do it all the time. They, and they, men have, you know, obviously they've been at this game longer and there's a good track record of them coming back and winning their seats back. Um, Karen Handel in Georgia will be an interesting one right, to watch. Right, right. Exactly. And, and others, I'm sure. Interesting, too, because she's going to try to take the seat back from a woman. So talking um, a bit more personally, the hyper-partisan environment that we operate in is also accompanied by really hyper-vicious criticism mm -hmm. across many more platforms than we would have imagined when right. you were starting out in journalism. Are critics more vicious or is it just does it just feel that way because there are more opportunities? And how do you deal with that? Right. I think that uh, social media has just amplified um, so much uh, negative speech, hate speech, criticism, tribalism, attacks, um, because it's so uh, readily available. You can be anonymous in a lot of cases. I am not on Twitter. I'm on it anonymously, and I am horrified how much time I spend on it every day because it's my news feed, but I'm not on Twitter, and I don't tweet. I'm not on Facebook and I don't engage. I don't want to um, create a version of myself for the public. I don't think they care what I thought or what I ate for breakfast. I don't think they're interested. And I um, don't 
want to go back and forth. I, I'm really an anti-partisan, so both parties come at me. Um, but I'm a big critic of the president, and there's a huge, um, you know, the, you get a lot of that. I mean, column. I get emails, comments on my columns, you know, every, it, it, I get a lot. Um, so it, it, it affirms every time I, I see it that it is a wise move for me to not be on mm-hmm. Twitter. Um, so I don't want to play that game. Um, I'm um, I'm not trying to win the argument. I make my case and go home and people can um, go on chat rooms and scream at each other. And when I speak to groups, I, I try to um, I'm so upset by how partisan everything and how tribal everything is. And when you're in the center, you can see it more clearly. You can see how. Uh, counterproductive it is and how not rational it is and so um, when I speak to groups particularly young people I I always try to encourage them to do a few things one of them is to vote in primaries and um, the reason is even if your cedar's red or blue and it'll never change you could send a more reasonable person there and not someone who's going there to vote no or yes all the time or whatever Um, another is to um, Try to uh, download the Smart News app and just not cleanse yourself from your siloed media, but but uh, give yourself a check of how much you can keep taking in your siloed media. But it's a good check of like what you're being fed and basically to never get your news from Facebook and that it's a great place for your photos and your videos and your fun. But don't fight on Facebook about politics and don't read the news on your wall on Facebook because it's chosen by an algorithm to affirm your bias and make us hate each other more. So those are my um, personal beefs about um, fighting on social media platforms, political war uh, on the internet, um, and criticizing people so readily and so easily because it makes you feel good in the moment. Um, it, it just doesn't get anyone anywhere. And um, and unfortunately, it's, it's so dangerous um, because I like to say, I mean, like the KKK meeting was far less effective when they had to gather in a parking lot than, you know, when they're on um, – a site right now, thousands of them all going wild. Uh, that's just an example I just took out of nowhere. But, uh, you know, that's that's yeah. uh, it's really dangerous. And I think it's really dangerous for our children who are digital natives and don't know the world that we were raised in without this. So they can't see more as clearly as we can how how um, poisonous it is. Yeah. How do you keep from internalizing the feedback, the hypercriticism, the it's really it's not feedback. That that's the wrong right. term. It, right. It's it really, never feedback. It's, no, it's not feedback. And it's and it's hard because, you know, you get feedback. Feedback if when it's constructive can be really helpful. Right. It right. is worth listening yeah. to. But when it's just criticism or snarking or hateful comments, how do you keep from internalizing it? Right. Well, um, because it comes from both sides a little easier. Um, but I, but the people, yeah, but the people, but the, 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 the criticism about the president is, is, is frustrating because I'm actually, my criticism is not of his particular policies or that he's a Republican. My criticism is the norm smashing and the erosion of the rule of law and the undermining of the judiciary and all that stuff that I think is incredibly dangerous. So that's, that's like a whole thing about where are we as a country and our civics lessons and our people understanding how fragile our democracy is. And so that actually, um, instead of the criticism about my hairdos and, you know, that I'm an old bag or whatever they want to say, um, that I can really just it's like I'm I'm pretty much rubber on that at this point. But I'm really concerned that people aren't concerned mm. about where our system is headed if I mean we are really blessed to be Americans and it's a miraculous experiment and the uh, it, it's so easily 
eroded and 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 really destroyed at this 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 experiment. It takes a lot to keep it together, and so I I get really down when I hear from people who think like government shutdowns are good and that you know decimating a community economically because it had like a government installation where all that income dollars was going. These things that that's I actually get bummed out about that kind of stuff, not the personal attacks. I get upset about. Um, you know, where we're headed, because we are um, having a good uh, economic arc right now, Laura. But we, as you know, as a country, just need so much help in terms of um, moving out of, you know, with globalization and moving into a different time. We just we really need to help so many pockets of this country. And fighting about like political personalities is just what people seem to want to focus on. So it's that's the part of my job that I, you know, that I just get that part. If you've covered Capitol Hill for this long and you've seen so much change and actually just really deteriorate, that's the part that lingers. Yeah. It's not the personal criticism. We ask everybody who comes on the podcast for a single piece of advice, a life hack, a mantra. It might be something that you tell your kids. What would be yours? I just I, I think if you always do the right thing, you won't regret it life gets tough, but you have to do the right thing, uh, no matter the cost. I think that I would choose that one. To, uh, You're raising teenagers. I it's know, not nice to be you. mean. I actually, my <laughs> kids are so nice. I mean, I think they, they turned out pretty well so far because we had all these, you know, mantra discussions a long time ago. But I just think that choose the right path and the right action. And it doesn't mean that it'll make you popular or make you a good salary or anything. But I think it's it's really... It's just hard to, to take shortcuts. It, it it always comes back to you. So I think it would be do the right thing. I love it. A.B., thank you Thank so you, Laura. Really appreciate you being here. Remember, everyone, the film is called An Acceptable Loss. Our thanks to Corrado Mooncoin, Colleen Griffin, and Joe Chappelle, as well as Candy Strait. Rent or buy the movie An Acceptable Loss on Amazon, Hulu, YouTube, or any of the other streaming platforms. And we thank you all for listening. 